0: and welcome to this special Inside Briefing summer podcast in which we take a deeper dive into different aspects of government. I'm Hannah White and I'm Acting Director of the Institute for Government. Today's topic is Whitehall. What is Whitehall? Where is Whitehall? Both a street in the heart of London and for many years shorthand to talk about UK central government. What we want to talk about today are the buildings that make up the heart of our government, the geography of Whitehall. An increasing number of civil servants are being relocated to far-flung places like Leeds. That was a joke. And we thought it would be worth delving into Whitehall the place and the impact it has on Whitehall the people. How did the location of the Palace of Whitehall develop into the sprawl of government buildings around SW1? What are the buildings actually like to work in? How do those buildings shape the culture of the departments that inhabit them? What are the secrets of Whitehall's geography that only its inhabitants know? To discuss all that and much more, I'm joined by an excellent panel of Whitehall aficionados. Gus O'Donnell, Lord O'Donnell of Clapham, used to be head of the Civil Service and Cabinet Secretary. And Gus started work in Whitehall in 1979 and has seen many changes to its internal and external geography over the years. Gus, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Alex Thomas, our Civil Service Programme Director, reckons he has been based in at least eight different department buildings during his time in government. Alex, I won't ask you to list them all now, but what, which was your favourite?
1: Oh, uh, good question. Um, I'm going to. I'm not going to pick one of the sort of show pony uh, buildings that we'll probably come on to talk about later. I think I'll go for Nobel House, which um, is where DEFRA was based until a few years ago. Um, it used to be called Imperial Chemical House because it was where uh, ICI uh, was headquartered for a long time. It's a bit out of Whitehall, uh, the other side of Parliament Square, um, so it's a little bit quieter. Uh, beautiful building from the outside, some lovely kind of wood panelled corridors inside, and also crucially, there are a lot more cafes and uh, <laughs> places to, uh, you know, refresh and uh, do a little bit of sort of light shopping. Uh, far more than in Whitehall, the street, which is pretty barren.
0: Fair enough. And I'm also joined by Kath Haddon, who, as well as being historian of all things Whitehall, used to work in the Churchill War Rooms, that underground Warren of Rooms from which the Cabinet ran the Second World War. Kath. I mean, clearly
2: you weren't there during the Second World War. Mm. No, no, not so. Uh, I was there when they were creating the Churchill uh, War Rooms, but I did have one very unusual day because you'd be underground all day in this warren of of offices that were all steeped in, in the Second World War and you wouldn't see daylight all day long. And then one time I completely forgot to go outside and then came out at the end of the day, only to find that the entirety of Horse Guards Parade had tanks in it and I had a brief moment where I was like, what the hell has just happened to me? Uh, but it turned out there was some kind of parade going on. And so there were all these sort of tanks and other uh, sort of military type vehicles that were not just there to try and give me a bit of a mini heart attack.
0: Not a coup at the heart of government.
2: No. Thank um,
0: <laughs> Kath, can you just kick us off with a bit of the history of um, why, is, why is Whitehall where government is based at all?
2: Well, I mean, a lot of it stems from uh, Westminster Cathedral um, and and that being the sort of heart of of the church and therefore kings were drawn to it, therefore courtiers both serving uh, the the church and also the state, the king, uh, were basing themselves around there. And Thomas Wolsey, uh, Henry VIII's advisor, was one of those people and he he started building his own large uh, establishment, shall we say, on the banks of the Thames there. And it was after his fall that uh, Henry VIII took over that uh, and expanded it. And that was the Whitehall uh, and the Whitehall Palace that then flowed from that. And that's why uh, the street eventually got that name. Although no one really knows why it was called Whitehall, because apparently the hall wasn't actually very white at all.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of bakers. Um, I'm always told my surname comes from people who were who were bakers. Gus, how much does, does history matter to people who work in Whitehall? Do ministers care about the history? Do they want the historic rooms for their offices?
3: No, they their priorities are rather different. So, when it comes to uh, number ten, the 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 mad clamour is to be as close to the prime minister as possible. That's what all the fighting's about. And everywhere else, it's um, can I get the most prestigious room? And um, this is where a cabinet secretary obviously has to fight very hard to ensure that nobody gets his room or her room. <laughs> um, that's the number one priority of a cabinet secretary, clearly. You're but giving it, but the game it, yeah. away, Gus. I know, exactly. So, God, <clears throat> better keep that to yourselves, everybody. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but also, I think there's, there is functionality. So quite often in Treasury, for example, there were questions about whether the chancellor – would actually have his main office inside number 11 Downing Street or in the Treasury Building. And that might sound like a a kind of esoteric issue, but it's absolutely crucial because chancellors that work out of number 11, number 11 being right next door to number 12, it creates and being a very small office section, uh, tends to give very high power towards the small number of people that are near them, mainly special advisors, it has to be said. And if you get a chancellor back in your uh, building, then you get a chance to actually uh, influence them much more and get the evidence to them directly. So, yeah, I think it's, it's really important that, that that secretaries of state actually have a very close link with their departments and don't think that their only job is to liaise with number 10.
0: And you wouldn't therefore be a fan of the New Zealand model of the beehive and having all ministers just in together with each other?
3: So it's possible in, uh, so New Zealand and Scotland, I think, do this well. Um, It's much harder where government is much bigger. uh, And you're talking about a bigger country. So there's, it's a, it's a possible way of going forward, and I think that it has some great advantages, and I would recommend it for any smaller government. But I think in the UK system, it's it's just not feasible. We're too big.
0: And you can't have enough enough ministers and enough of their um,
3: private offices and, and spads and so on together to fit them all into one building. That's right. It would it would just be it would be a massive building, and and you partly get the issue that you get if you look at say Australia. Uh, with Canberra uh, and you know it 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 creates this bit where there's this big part of government and it's all in one building and in essence they kind of lose touch with the rest of the world and I think this happens where you have a location where the, it's in the capital city but the capital city is just about government so uh, I spent two terms, uh, Alex was talking about his favorite office. My favorite office was uh, when I was working at the IMF um, in Washington uh, because you're, well, it, it allows you to interact with the outside world a lot, but but both in the US with Washington being capital and Canberra and Ottawa to some extent, you are a lot further removed from what I would call real, the real economy. Um, and the fact that London is such a diverse place uh, is a great advantage. And the fact that the, it's a financial center as well as a government center is really important.
1: And I think, I mean, Gus, Gus makes a point there, which I completely agree with about being isolated from the uh, sort of the real world, the wider uh, world, you know, it's uh, difficult enough to keep in touch uh, at the best of times. Um, but there's also a, a narrower point, I think, if you do have the beehive style where ministers are all together, makes for much more sort of coherent ministerial cabinet government. But pretty quickly, uh, there's the potential to get isolated from your department and the sort of channels of advice are much kind of thinner. It's more likely that gatekeepers are uh, sort of curating the sort of information that is getting to ministers from their department. So I do think there's a real risk that ministers become uh, isolated from their department, which to me, I mean, this is the point of what we're talking about today, speaks to the power of geography, if you like. It's amazing how even just being on a different floor of a building uh, or you know, next door um, uh, affects the uh, the kind of thickness of the Contact that ministers and other kind of powerful decision makers get but with them um, with their advisors
3: that that's completely true and one thing just one point i would add alex is that if you try and adopt this model by just having the secretaries of state in that one building and the other ministers in a, somewhere else you then break down the team aspect and one of the things i say to new prime ministers i hope the new prime minister will uh, bear this in mind is you should when you're thinking about a ministerial team take Department of Work and Pensions think about all those ministers working there as a team you know they'll have some of them will have different strengths and weaknesses you know don't pick five goalkeepers Um, pick one who's good at strategic one who's good at delivery you know all sorts of different things should be important and building that team won't work if the secretaries of state and the rest of the ministers are in different places.
0: And just to continue on this theme of sort of the power of, of proximity, if you like, we had this, didn't we, when um, Dominic Cummings was in Number 10, um, and the questions about where he was going to have his uh, set up this nerve center of government. And there's a lot of talk about who was able to get between the Cabinet Office and Number 10, and who ha- has those prized key cards to the link door. Why, why is it so important um, for people to be working? in number 10 or in 70 Whitehall. I mean there must be better offices presumably, Cath. <laughs> uh there
2: are better offices. I mean there's lots of talk always about oh could you not move to the QE2 building which is just down the road and is a, a lot bigger. But um I do think some of it is the history of it. Um and you know a lot of prime ministers end up liking the idea. It's the you know it's that famous black door. It's uh the famous rooms that you get to go in, they are steeped in history. So there is an element to which that kind of tradition forms a big part of it. And and in in a sense, Hannah, we're seeing the same problem in terms of the very necessary refurbishment of the House of Parliament. You know, no MPs want to give up their opportunity to spend time in historic building during their time in office. Um so that makes it all you know really important. But proximity, I mean this has been a theme for centuries It is the reason why Whitehall is where it is is because all the courtiers wanted not only offices near to their bosses but often lodgings because being close to the king um, and being able to you know control or at least know who was going in and out and seeing them that's all part of the the process of power is is you know how how do you make sure that your people are the ones who are influencing the person in power and how do you make sure that People you don't want to aren't getting access to them. And that is still a big part of how Number 10 operates today.
1: Yeah. And Hannah, you you mentioned the sort of the early phase of the Johnson uh, government when Dominic Cummings was trying to set up these sort of, you know, data teams and um, uh, uh, a um sort of more, you know, modern and logical uh, setup, if you like, in ca- the cabinet office and 70 Whitehall um with, you know, data flowing in. And there were these, these extraordinary sort of quite entertaining uh, uh graphics that the newspapers <laughs> were putting out about, you know, exactly how 70 Whitehall would be laid out. And I think anyone who's worked around there certainly i felt i don't know what gus kath and, and you hannah thought was um you know sort of uh-oh not sure this is going to work because you're actually moving the uh sort of locus of advisors further away from the center of power further away from the prime minister personally and again it may, may only be you know 100 meters or something like that but it's through the link door and it's that much further away from the prime minister and you can't then particularly with the prime minister like boris johnson uh, uh was uh, you can't then um uh, you know you, you can't pounce on him and uh uh Push the uh, you know push the decisions through, or uh, reinforce the uh, advice that he's just been given, or something like that. So that always seemed uh, destined to fail to me.
2: Yeah, and I mean, I put forward a few cynical points, but there are some very uh, normal office working environment points about proximity that were brought up around that time, and also in the aftermath of Partygate, when again they were looking at this office of the prime minister and yet more ideas of revamping everything, and that also Im- involved moving uh, people away. And and they were saying, well, the problem is if you're not there and you don't hear the various conversations that are going on, um, you know, you don't understand the sort of what's going on with decision making and therefore you can't put in your thinking, you can't incorporate it into yours. So there were some arguments that, okay, it's not quite, you know, a, a modern open plan office, but something about the warren of rooms in number 10 still does allow you that opportunity to sort of, you know, for for accidental encounters or for, you know, proximity that allows you to be part of the decision-making process that allows for a sort of better team working, all those kind of things. Um, So there are some sort of, you know, more modern aspects that you could think about that aren't just about sort of controlling the king.
3: You have to remember the number 10 is a bit like the TARDIS. I mean, you know, it looks quite like a small terraced house from the outside, but it's massive inside. And it is, to use Kath's phrase, it's a warren. And uh, it is very important to proximity matters massively. And I think people are right to, to care about that because those casual encounters are important. The office that's right next to the prime minister, the gatekeepers are massively important. Otherwise, anyone pours in and, and you know, that that leads to chaos. So but part of the issue, that I think if, if people are listening, thinking, well, well, you know, why don't why don't you change this? Why don't you make it? uh more efficient and all the rest of it is the i always call it the uh my own problem you know the, the augustine problem you know the law give me chastity but not yet everyone wants to revamp number 10 but not yet like like mm. uh parliament because they look back on episodes and god i lived through it uh, black wednesday for example with john major as prime minister we were in um uh admiralty arch uh you know building nearby no, no screens, you know, the, it was a chaos, no voter screens and the like, absolute chaos. We we're on the phone to try and find out what was happening to the exchange rate. I mean, so it, it, we absolutely should uh, renovate uh, number 10 and 70 Whitehall. We absolutely should renovate Parliament. Um, but everyone will agree with that, but it's just got to be later.
1: There's, there's power in the branding as well, I suppose, isn't there, Gus, which yeah. is, you know, you, prime ministers want that black door with the, the white number 10 on it. They want to make statements, you know, haggles with, um, you know, prime ministers over whether they could make political statements outside the, the door. And, you know, it's, it's, it's technically a public street. So, yes, it's OK to make a political announcement there, even if you couldn't do it inside the building. But you take the uh, take the uh, take the government branding off it and then it's OK and all of these sort of things. But the, the power of that
3: image is so is so strong. Again, with John Major, first uh, first ceasefire, you know, um, Downing Street Declaration with Northern Ireland, all the leaders at Christmas, big Christmas tree beside Number Ten, all the leaders. I mean, to me, that's one of the highlights of my my career. That photo. So yeah, it's really massively important.
0: And you mentioned earlier, Gus, the, the cabinet secretaries. Uh, office very Hmm. impressive office can you describe how that fits within the geography uh, of Whitehall and and why that's important
3: obviously it's central I mean people will know if they've watched Yes Minister that it's in uh, the cabinet office I-70 Whitehall not inside number 10 Uh, and to get to number 10 you have to go through that Uh, what's now obviously the the tube but in the old days was the link door and that was the one that Sir Humphrey was locked out of and ended up walking across the, <laughs> the window ledges to get back to the Prime Minister, you know, um, because Never it happened was so to you. important. Never happened to me. No, no, I was very, very careful to make sure that access was open. And, um, but it but it matters, yeah. And so you're, it. but it is important to be close, but not that close. You know, cabinet secretaries have to maintain a certain distance you, you know you want to be there to advise prime ministers and to be able to say no and particularly on uh propriety integrity issues and the like and that link that line between what's political and what's not so there's um there's a reason for being close but not too close for cabinet secretaries for special advisors i mean they from their point of view the closer the better they that's what they want And you need to manage that process by making sure that you have a private office that uh, can manage uh, to ensure the most effective operation for the prime minister. I think that's the important thing for the prime minister. And and prime ministers will often tell you, for God's sake, can you kindly keep the special advisor X or Y out of my hair? They're driving me mad. (laughs) You know, so so we have to take their keys away sometimes. (laughs)
0: what about the cabinet secretary's head of the civil service role how does that work in relation to, to to being in whitehall
3: it's it's massive because when you're um when there are big civil service issues um i mean this is why the the keeping the two posts together is important uh it's it's easy to go in and see the prime minister on things they're really really interested in like you know the current state of Russia-Ukraine war, the cost of living crisis. Oh, and by the way, Prime Minister, I need to talk to you about uh, relocation of civil servants and, you know, let's say pick something very arbitrary, regional pay or something like that. (laughs) Then then you'll get in there and you'll, you know, put across your own views and, and the evidence to the Prime Minister directly, which is important when they may have been misinformed by others, particularly about numbers. Alex? (laughs) <laughs> no no comment, <laughs> no comment. Um, <laughs> we've already commented in Africa
0: <laughs> Alex Sorry. you've you've worked closely with ministers in, in your time they, they always have their own offices also in their departments and sometimes they have anterooms and so on can you just talk to us about the importance of that of that geography within departments for ministers and how they how they run things
1: yeah absolutely and it um it goes a little bit to what I said about the the you know the beehive and the pros and cons of having all ministers together all ministers in their departments. And I think there is a real there is a real value Where, wherever you end up on that debate. There's a real value in having ministers in their departments because it adds a, a proximity and a sort of you know intangible uh, electricity almost to a department to know that a minister's in the building and um uh, and the the key decision maker is is there and is able to have have contact with their civil servants on a very regular basis. So the the offices themselves, I mean, normally they're pretty decent offices. If you're in a, one of the taller buildings, uh, in or around Whitehall, they'll often be on, uh, a top floor or near a top floor. Um, a nice, you know, nice sizable office sofas, um, uh, a few, uh, choices from the government art collection on the walls, um, which is one of the, uh, you know, one of the perks of a minister soon after they, uh, join, uh, soon after they, they take the job, they can take a trip to the, the art collection. Uh, and then outside they'll have a, Private office, normally a slightly kind of grottier office or um, uh, slightly less, um, uh, slightly less uh, glamorous, but uh, where private secretaries are crowded in there, depending on the seniority of the minister, three, four, five, six, seven, eight private secretaries um, who are there um, to run the minister's diary, to manage the flow of paper, actual or virtual, going into uh, the minister's um, uh, going into the minister's um, red box. Um, uh, then also, I mean. The private office is really important, and it's important, I think, also that the private office is accessible in a way because that's where senior officials across the department, you know, might just happen to be, you know, wandering past on the sixth floor or the eighth floor and pop into private office. They've got a particular issue they want to um, test with a minister or a special advisor or to kind of air. Um, and the the accessibility of the private office is really important as, as as well because they are, you know, literally and metaphorically the gatekeepers for um, for the ministers. So it does really matter in be a in the department that said you know not all civil servants can work in the building that um uh, that uh, the ministers are working in we may got to get on to it later but it is also important to remember that there are lots of civil servants you know miles outside london who uh, uh, have very little to do with um with ministers but those kind of very senior ones who who are advising on the policy decisions are 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 you know keen to be present
2: yeah i also always thought it was quite interesting the different um ministerial offices that i've Visited there is a bit of a sort of growing divide between the much older buildings where often you will have, as Alex described, a sort of uh, the minister's office and then an ante room, which is where his his private office team sits. Um, both within sort of self contained rooms, but then some of the more uh recently built buildings, you end up with ministers all on the same corridor, and often all of their private offices sitting together in an open plan yeah. area between those offices and I do wonder what what a difference that makes because you know it 's something we look at a lot in our work on on how ministerial teams in particular can work better together and the the private office teams for each of those ministers being able to talk to each other resolve issues um you know make sure that they're coordinated and so forth and sort of sifting through the huge workload that they're all getting through that's really important and there's loads of ways they can do that now virtually and they all have sort of you know various new um uh, software and uh, various apps and so forth, including WhatsApp, that they can take advantage of to to try and facilitate that. But there's something again about proximity and just being able to sort of talk to somebody over the desk
1: and stuff. And the uh, the move from the old to the new is not always welcomed by ministers. I mentioned Ooh. Nobel House earlier and the sort of wonderful wood panelling on the sixth floor uh, there. There was one Secretary of State there. So De- a lot of DEFRA has now moved into Marsham Street, which is the uh, home office site and is a modern uh, building. There was one uh, Secretary of State who shall remain nameless who uh, launched quite a fierce campaign to uh, take the paneling off the walls of the office in uh, Nobel House and attach it onto the walls of uh, Marsham Street, which would have looked extremely <laughs> odd. But it shows how it shows how attached some Secretary of State get to to uh, the kind of uh, the, the the image of the of the office,
0: literally mm. physically attached. Um, yeah. can, can you talk to us about proximity to Parliament? I know that. Mm. Um, in our Ministers Reflect interviews we do with outgoing ministers, they often talk to us about how, um, you know, how important it is to them to spend time in Parliament, but how sometimes that isn't a priority for, for their private offices and so on. And there can be a bit of a battle over time spent with their colleagues uh, versus time spent physically detached from them.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the current way it all works, there is no way that uh, ministers' offices can work without being within pretty close proximity to Parliament because they've got to rush over there for votes. Um, And that's the sort of first part of it. And there's always, whenever there is a key vote going up, you know, there is coordination that needs to happen, the private offices need to know that the minister needs to be in proximity or they need to get slipped, which means that they're being given permission basically to Um, you know, be away from from London uh, and from proximity to Parliament for a key vote. Uh, But for ministers, it's it's more than that, because, you know, again, it's the chance encounters. A big part of what they do, uh, not just as being um, ministers, but also as MPs, means that they have to be around their colleagues, uh, their parliamentary staff, they need to be talking to them. Um, you know, many of them will talk about the fact that they can lose their job uh, in a bad afternoon happening in Parliament. So we, we've we talked to former ministers who said that what they would do is sort of insist that there was an extra hour in the diary after, you know, if they had particular departmental questions or some or other meetings over in Parliament, so that they just got to be around there and chat to people. Um, and it was very well illustrated a few weeks ago when uh, Boris Johnson was battling for his political survival, and there was all sorts of talk about you know him touring the tea rooms. Whenever that phrase comes out, touring the tea rooms, that means that somebody's trying to go and, and get some people on side and are just trying to you know run into as many people as possible. Uh, so Parliament's really p- important part of this geography.
0: And Alex, I mean, obviously it's implicit in everything we've been saying. Whitehall isn't just the street itself, and and it and it extends. Beyond that, how far is it? Is it just within the sort of division bell uh, area, i.e., the area that people can get to uh, Parliament when a vote's called, or how far does it go within? Um, London, and then I guess, of course, an important point to make is that London offices are only a very small part of the of the civil service estate. Yeah,
1: exactly, and have been getting smaller as um uh, as the estate's been rationalised over the last uh, ten years or, or so. Um, uh, so it, if 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 a building has a minister in it, it does tend to be pretty close to Whitehall. It's not not all on the on the street itself, but within a stone's throw mainly for the reasons as, as Kath was just saying about Parliament and uh, as you said getting getting to um, Parliament in time to uh, vote uh, but there are plenty of offices I mean my first office uh, I remember being quite disappointed when I was uh, my first civil service job was uh, 123 Victoria Street a building called Ashdown House which was one of the most boring buildings you can imagine uh, and uh, really didn't look at all like the kind of beautiful uh, stone Whitehall uh, uh, um, impressive buildings that, that I'd imagined um, so there are there are more kind of administrative buildings around and about. There's some of you know the government digital service um, uh, is based uh, further in East London. There's a new-ish government hub out in Canary Wharf and around there. So there are um, uh, there's a there's a lot of the um, Home offices based in Croydon, uh, particularly the um, immigration uh, department. So there are these offices sort of dotted around London. And then as you say, it's only actually 20% of the civil service that works in uh, London. So there are loads and loads of offices, not just the kind of you know job centres and um, uh, um, HMRC offices but you know hubs in Leeds in Bristol in Edinburgh Glasgow um, uh, all, all all over the country.
0: And there's been a lot of um, discussion recently about remote working versus sort of being present in the office and I guess different ministers Gus care more or less about that.
3: Yes very much I mean in, in the old days I remember sp- um trying to move more civil servants out of London, um, you couldn't get ministers to, to go to Sheffield or Darlington or wherever. Um, it was very difficult. So I think with, with rem- more remote working, that's, that's made life much more feasible to have a more uh, spread out civil service. I mean, I would say for ministers, I think the thing we forget in that discussion about parliament is that curiously enough, they're human. And they're all MPs, nearly all MPs. Get the must get the Lords, um, but they're um, so they want to talk to people who are like them, their colleagues who are MPs. And that's you know just like civil servants want to huddle around and talk to other civil servants, so MPs want to talk to other MPs. You know they've got uh, constituency issues, they've got lots of things like that. So, so they actually like escaping from Whitehall to Parliament. Uh, it's a different culture, a different world, and uh, one they probably feel more at home in. And uh, so that's, you know, because they've all grown up as MPs uh, and uh, they've been in it a long time and they know their way around it. Um, so I think that's important. Remember that uh, for number 10 and number 11 Downing the Street, the, the, the office and the home uh, coexist. And that's really important when you think of the human side of this, you know, uh, I remember having to factor in for Tony Blair and and Gordon Brown uh, story time, you know, for the kids and trying to make that work, uh, a family home and an office on top of each other is really important. And also the other aspect of it is is it's absolutely disastrous for the physical health of the occupant um, because. They actually literally don't get to walk anywhere. Um, It's amazing that prime ministers don't become incredibly obese and you have to work incredibly hard to stop that because all they're doing is, you know, (laughs) at most walking up and down some stairs and they can take the lift if they want, you know.
0: I was going to say, in my Sorry? experience, civil service officers are particularly good at snacks. So snacks combined with uh, with
1: no, no exercise is probably uh, not great either. They're, they're no taxpayer money spent, obviously, Hannah.
3: <laughs> I was going to say that clearly, as former head of the Treasury, I thought we banned all chocolate biscuits long ago.
0: Personally purchased chocolate
3: biscuits.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Yes, Alex, I won't ask either of you to break the Official Secrets Act, but Kath, um, mm-hmm. what about Secret War? I White never Hall? signed it, yeah.
2: <laughs> um, yeah, well, I mean, I talked about the Cabinet War Rooms earlier on, which is the most well-known part of the sort of, uh, you know, military side of of the buildings of, of Whitehall, uh, which is was basically just um, e- extra rooms in the basements of the Treasury Building where they put a sort of concrete um skirt i think is the the phrase we use for it over the top of it but it's i mean by the end of the second world war when the v2 rockets were going down it wouldn't have covered you know it wouldn't have protected anyone from that and churchill didn't really like the the building it was used for administrative purposes it was used for cabinet war cabinet meetings but it was never uh the place that churchill wanted to actually spend his evenings even when the blitz was in full flow um so there were other sort of buildings used for that but then by the time the cold war started up um you know the the realization that nuclear war uh, would bring much greater destruction and the need for um uh you know greater protection has we assume we don't you know there's not a lot of not a lot known about this but has led to a sort of you know greater amount of space of bunkers um under certain buildings and also there were all sorts of tunnels where cables were put that you know, there are rumours about which of them are tunnels now for, for travelling around so that you can get to different parts of Whitehall without going above ground. Uh, but some of them, I'm sure, mm. are um, more rumour than reality. So, so yeah, we don't fully know what's actually subterranean in Whitehall. I'm sure Gus and Alex know a little bit more than me, um, but, um, but it is one of those sort of mystery parts of Whitehall that, that only the people that work there get to find out about.
0: Alex, we know a bit about Cobra, don't we? That's often uh, mentioned in the media.
1: Yeah, so Cobra, uh, the uh, sort of glamorously named, but actually, as ever, you know, administratively titled Cabinet Office Briefing Room, um, uh, is based in Seventy. Whitehall that is sort of behind you know in a in a secure zone you have to kind of give in your phones and um, uh, make sure that your name's on the list and all of that but that is part of the you know part of the heart of Whitehall and I think it's really important actually if we're talking about the geography that the the civil contingency uh, and you know broader contingency brain can be located very close to the centre of um, uh, the center of power, the center of decision making. So it's really important that, a, you know, if need be, within moments, a prime minister can be chairing a a, a, a meeting and make making, uh, you know, real time decisions about um, about that. I think we saw, you know, lots of lessons to learn. We've written about quite a lot of them about um uh, about how that architecture and machinery can be improved um uh, from the COVID experience and from other um, crises. But the fact it's, you know, it needs to be absolutely embedded in the very center of government because ultimately it's the prime minister um, advised by people like um, uh, like like Gus used to be, uh, to take those kind of life and death decisions in, a, in
3: an emergency. Cobra is very important. Um, but also, you were talking about the, the secret passages and all the rest of it. And um, obviously, I am not going to reveal any uh, official secrets. But um, during the coalition talks, there were there were times when we needed to get um, different parties together. And you had masses of press camped outside virtually every government building. And Certainly, uh, we made good use of facilities then. And people have written about that in their memoirs. So that's why I can mention it. But um, uh, you you do need that uh, facility, um, most certainly
1: i just say one thing about the the street and this may be maybe me waxing kind of lyrical a little bit but whitehall is a really beautiful street and i sort of feel like we haven't quite kind of got got across that the nature of the buildings there's a sort of you know how power how the importance of these buildings and how they affect everybody's lives is reflected um in Mm. in those those buildings and there's something about the history you know the decisions that were taken in the 19th century and um uh first part of the 20th century to create those buildings and to create that kind of you know solidity and physical representation of the sort of continuation of the state as i say i'm getting over excited and over lyrical but there's just something about that has that still has that sort of uh, romance and, uh, and and physical representation one of my one of my favorite stories mm-hmm. about um about how Whitehall could have looked was that um, the designs for what became St Pancras Station, the Midland Hotel Mm. in St Pancras Station, were going to be the Foreign Office. And it was only because Lord Palmerston had blocked um, George Gilbert Scott, who'd been commissioned to design the Foreign Office in the the middle of the 19th century, that we didn't have basically St Pancras Station sitting in the middle of Whitehall. But (laughs) but that that white building as the the Foreign Office was created then sort of set the tone for the whole whole street. So anyway, forgive my lyricism, but I just wanted to
3: sort of get that in. Can I just add one bit, that, which is that, and the stories that are associated with the different rooms. So, I remember going in for the the press conference when Gordon Brown was announcing the independence of the Bank of England, and it was we were announcing it in the room where Churchill had gone out to uh, greet people who were all in in Whitehall uh, at the end of the war, and it was uh, you know the there's so much history and so many things have happened in those rooms that i think that that really does give you a sense of uh, being at the heart of government and the important issues that have been decided there for for all of us
0: and Cath, i was going to allow you a, a final uh, opportunity to wax lyrical on the historical um, remnants which remain in whitehall
2: yeah, well, I think, I mean, Alex is absolutely right, particularly about the Foreign Office building and then the um, Treasury building next door or the government offices, Great George Street, as they are officially known. I've never known how you're supposed to pronounce the acronym there of Gog, GOGS or something like that. GOGS, Gogs. Yeah. Um but actually what's fascinating about whitehall the street is just the range of architecture and that really including the jumble of uh, different buildings in and around downing street and that really reflects this kind of rich history where the original whitehall palace burnt down and you know eventually uh, kings moved out to sort of kensington palace and clarence house and and so these were all taken over by courtiers and all sorts of different buildings built up and then eventually formal government building started by the admiralty the other side of horse guards parade so you've got this kind of mix of all different kinds of architecture simply because of that sort of desire for proximity to power and the the, the wanting to sort of build mm-hmm. um you know build to impress basically uh, to show with, off your wealth yeah, you which know. also
1: then with empire spread out across the world i mean i've never been to new delhi or so but you can sort of see see whitehall mm-hmm. uh, in 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 those those capitals of the uh, of the old empire and now now commonwealth
0: And that's it for another special summer episode of Inside Briefing. Many thanks to Gus O'Donnell, Alex Thomas and Kath Haddon. And thank you all for listening at home or perhaps in some other geography on your summer holidays. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms. And do please leave us a review. And don't forget to visit our website at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. See you soon.